Oh, that's fun. You know, we work really hard to craft a nice flowing service and then guitar strings break and you're just out of whack. Uh, <clears throat> but it's good because I have to imagine this is what it felt like with the early church. Uh, there was no production. There was no slides. They're just like praying and teaching and sharing and eating and it's all good. It's all good. Uh, so we just celebrated the resurrection. So what now? Right? How do we live in light of the resurrection? Because the resurrection changes everything. So how do we live in light of what is the most important act in all of human history? That's a significant question for us to consider. Now, uh, just to review a couple of the things that I was trying to say last week, but we talked about the idea that we have all within us transformational experiences. We have things that are hard but can be good. We all experience what, what I think Christ went through uh, was resurrection experiences, or what I call transformational experiences. I don't think what Christ did 2,000 years ago was supposed to be simply one man's act for all of us. In fact, what I believe it was, was supposed to be a promise and a hope that the story's still being written and whatever we're going through doesn't have to be the final word. And so sometimes we enter into these transformational experiences by choice. We choose to get married. We choose to have kids. We choose to relocate. We choose to go down a career path. We choose to have a vocational change in that career path. And it's always hard, but it can be good. Now, we also have transformational experiences which we did not choose and are really hard. Maybe it was a cancer diagnosis or maybe it was the death of a loved one. Maybe it was uh, you were forced to move or declare bankruptcy or someone divorced you. Whatever the case might be, it was painfully hard and you'd never want to go through it again. Yet, if we have the hope of Christ, we know that the story is still being written and hope is always within reach. That's the message of the resurrection. So whatever you're coming in here with, burden-bearing, coming in with a limp, know this, that the resurrection changes everything. That what feels terminal is not. What feels sort of, kind of, like a period, it's actually just a comma. And God wants to continue to write a redemptive story. And because of the resurrection, what happened through Christ, not just in Christ, now when we say yes to Christ can happen in us. And that's, that's good news, right? So whatever, whatever burdens we're bearing, whatever struggles we're facing, whatever addictions we have, whatever the case might be, hope is within reach. And so... Um, what, what I want to talk about is living with this present reality of heaven as here and now. Because maybe you were like me, is now that we have this resurrection picture and we can live with the hope, Jesus made a really bold statement when he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I grew up in a tradition, and I don't think they meant to, but they talked about heaven as there and then that you kind of just have to take it on the chin till Jesus comes back or you die, but just wait till heaven, it gets better. But get yourself some good friends and maybe get yourself some like pint of ice cream or, or fried food to comfort you along the way, but it'll get better in the end. And what we have in Jesus, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, again, this might sound like mildly a bit of a review for some of you because this is part of what I feel like is, is a game-changing statement. 
at the beginning of Mark, Jesus has this statement, and and it comes out um, in three sections, and he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand, not near as in like it's coming, it's here. And then he says, repent and believe. So let me just break those down, believe the good news. So let's just break those down, because if we live in light of the resurrection, we have to live with the idea that eternity has already begun. Heaven is already a present and fixed reality. Now, you and I live in a broken reality. It's the world that God created, but not necessarily the world that God intended. So you have to imagine the injustice, the abuse. You have to think about human trafficking and natural disasters and, 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 and diseases. And you go, is that actually the world that God intended? And I would say, no, I don't believe it was. It's all the effects of what happened when sin entered the human equation. Jesus comes along and he says, the time has come. And if you've listened to me for any amount of time, you know that he's not talking about chronos or chronology, uh, at, at a moment in the, or an hour in the, in the life of a day. He's saying kairos, which translates an opportunity. Wait a second. So the opportunity has come. What kind of opportunity? The kingdom of heaven, that's what opportunity. Wait a second. So now if I begin to see heaven in light of not something that's there and then but here and now and I realize that heaven is at hand there are opportunities constantly for me to pay attention to tune into be interrupted by that I can experience heaven on earth okay that's changing the narrative of my life of our human condition of our broken world that's again good news and so then the question becomes if the opportunity for the kingdom of God is at hand, how then should we tap into or notice it? And he talks about, well, you've got to learn how to repent and believe the good news. And repentance isn't the thing that just reminds you of all your inadequacies. Repentance is the thing that you sensitize your heart and learn to turn, sometimes turn away, sometimes turn toward. But inevitably, what we're returning to is the divine affirmation that says, you are my son, you are my daughter in whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Now, if we can see returning to God, uh, returning to a divine affirmation, well, that makes it actually easy because I'm returning to something not to be reminded of my inadequacies. I'm returning to the, and sin's not the issue. I'm returning to the love uh, and the favor of God. So what is belief then without an action? So we have this beautiful picture that Jesus overcomes death and the resurrection story is supposed to be seated in each of us. That when we go through transformational experience, whether by choice or whether it occurs to us, the resurrection gives us hope for new life. And then Jesus comes along and says, wait, heaven isn't there and then, it's here and now. And the way we experience this is by learning to yield to the voice, to the whisper, to the prompts, to the check in your spirit that said, there's something else going on here and I want you to pay attention. We all have those moments where we're like, uh, I feel like this is kind of one of those um, God moments or like, like, why do I feel compelled to write this check? Why do I feel compelled to pull my car over and help? Why do I feel compelled to talk to this complete stranger? We have these moments that I would simply call Kairos moments. They are divine prompts inviting the kingdom of heaven in small ways, but to shine its light into darkness. 
that's living into the reality of the resurrection. Listen to this verse that comes in Luke chapter 17. It says, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, and catch this, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is in your midst. The translation of in your midst is it's within you. What we're talking about is a new identity. What we're talking about is citizenship. And each of you, if you say yes to Christ, pledge my allegiance, you possess dual citizenship. You are a citizen of earth, but a citizen of heaven. And the way we leverage that, that citizenship is by bringing heaven to a dark earth, heaven to a broken place. And so how then can we live in light of the resurrection except by starting to pay attention and I would simply say spiritual maturity is, 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 a, is, is a growing awareness of the presence of God. It's us allowing our hearts to be sensitized and then yielding and going, I think I'm supposed to help. I think I'm supposed to say something. I think I'm supposed to give something. I think I'm supposed to stick my hand in the air and volunteer. I think I'm supposed to lead this. There is this invitation through God's spirit working in us that we can or cannot yield to we can tune in or tune out it's our prerogative but if we want to live in light of the resurrection then the, the way to do it is to sensitize our heart because let's be honest the way I cope with hard things in life is I insulate my heart I want to callous up my heart because I don't want to be too affected. And God is trying to capture our hearts because God is outraged by injustice. God is outraged by abuse. God is, I would say this, the things that you feel oftentimes are exactly how God feels. So if you've ever been tempted to say, why would a loving God have this, allow this to happen? Chances are that's the same way God feels. That was never the world that I intended. So um, Jesus taught at a very high level. Like a lot of rabbis, he taught theology in an almost a layered approach. In other words, Jesus didn't want to instruct with just knowledge. So a lot of liturgy is built around this idea that if we could just become more knowledgeable with God's word, and don't get me wrong, I love God's word, knowing God's word is super important, but if we make it into an intellectual exercise or a rote sort of routine, we miss the point. Jesus teaches in sort of a layered approach. Now, he did teach what was considered like the Torah and the law and the prophets. He also taught on a very emotional level because what he wanted you to do is grasp the information on a very personal way. So it'd be like this. Jesus paints a picture and he tells a story about this majestic king who invites beggars to his table. And the, the audience, wouldn't, it wouldn't be lost on them of the graciousness of the king sitting at the king's table with beggars and outcasts. And everyone's like, whoa, that, I mean, there's irony in that, but there's something really moving about that too. And then he paints a picture of a, of a shepherd um, going after his lost sheep. And you and I are like, oh, I don't deal with sheep. I have no herd of anything other than children that I can't keep track of. But he's like, no, there's this picture of a shepherd. And he knows that he's got all these sheep, but he's lost one. And he leaves the flock to go after the one. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because what Jesus is trying to do is teach not just for knowledge, but he's appealing to our heart. Because this is a relational dynamic. 
You and I might not be impressed or, or kind of moved by a lost sheep, but imagine you going through a crowded mall at Christmas time, holiday shopping, and you losing your child. Okay, now we're talking. What the heck happened to my kid? And you're freaking out. This is the kind of visceral, this is the kind of emotional grabbing that Jesus is trying to say, listen to me, this is the kind of picture of the heart of the Father who's so concerned with your care, with your well-being, that he's going to go after you at all costs. Drop what you're doing and go find him. And you're like, okay, now that feels like, and this is the kind of teaching that Jesus was going through. He was a passionate teacher whose goal was not just to give the people an intellectual knowledge of God, but to teach them about God's powerful love for them and cause us then to return to that love. Who wouldn't want to return to that love? There's a lot of people that just walked away from that love because it was a lesser version of it and it felt like shame or guilt or legalism or whatever. And I would simply say, keep reading, because that wasn't Jesus' message. Now, what I want to do over the next several weeks is Jesus comes along, and he starts using everyday and ordinary simple objects to try and describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, if you have kids, or if you have friends who are just kind of spiritual seekers, you probably at some point have struggled with trying to describe what God is like, or daddy what's what's heaven like and you're like Jesus was the same way and the, this the, the way he did it was he took common everyday ordinary objects and kind of you know what the kingdom of heaven is like and it wasn't like he crafted a three-point outline it wasn't like he had a script that he was going he was just walking along he's like well you know what heaven's like and and you know he just kind of sees what's in the field or sees what's around him and he starts making observations so what I want to do over the next several weeks is unpack the here and now, that the present reality of what the kingdom of heaven is like, and I don't want to just make that an intellectual pursuit, though I'll kind of mine for some scripture. I want to make that our pursuit in light of the new normal. Before we get to the new normal, let me just draw out a couple of things. Jesus says, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and then he tells a very quick parable about what it means, uh, like uh, kingdom of heaven is like yeast, and he begins by saying these words, in Matthew chapter 13, he says, um, and he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it was the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest in the garden of plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. And then he still, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. Uh, uh, that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked its way through the whole dough. Now, like a seed, what Jesus is doing is he's painting a picture of what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's not grandiose. It's not a production, and it's not necessarily hitting you over the head. Super important. Because we, in our American culture, want grandiose and big. God is blessing it if it's big. God is blessing it if I didn't miss it. Except that Jesus comes along and says, you want to know what heaven's like? Oh, it's like a mustard seed. A seed planted that no one would even know, that seems totally insignificant, except that it's small, it's subversive, uh, but it's indestructibly powerful. It's the idea that small things over time, when matured, can make a big difference. But the, here's the thing. Seeds can be really positive, or you can sow really negative seeds. 
And we've all had experience of like that maybe in the workplace. And maybe a bad attitude or being on a team. But in this case, Jesus is drawing out this beautiful picture of the kingdom of heaven is going about your life planting seeds. Seeds in conversation, invitations that aren't necessarily responded to at first, but they remember the invitation. Gestures made, coffees bought, lunches, tabs picked up, um, I'll help you move, volunteer efforts, yet whatever it takes, because those are just seeds, right? The kingdom of heaven isn't just a cherub on a cloud, wings and a harp. The kingdom of heaven is like, yeah, I can help. And it's just a seed. And it feels so insignificant, but anyone can do it. And that's the picture that Jesus is painting here. So he says, the kingdom of heaven is here and now. And the only way we yield or experience it is when we yield to it. Um, maybe a good illustration of this is the widow's mite or, or the widow's offering. There was this widow and she had just like barely two nickels to rub together, but she made that her offering. She was destitute and poor and Jesus celebrated it, not because they needed the money, but they celebrated her heart. And what the picture is so powerful is what makes it so powerful is her surrendered heart. She doesn't have much to give to begin with, um, but out gives the wealthy with her heart. When all a person has is a big heart but a small offering, one can only trust God for results. Come on now, that's, that's good seed, right? God, I want to know that this investment of my time or this check that I'm writing is going to be stewarded to maximum potential. And God's like, could you just trust me with ROI? That's my business. I will take care of results. You do you and plant the seeds and watch what I do with the results. Oh, but by the way, you might not ever get to see and enjoy the shade of the tree that you're planting. Ah, dang. I've been in ministry now, professional vocational ministry for 25 years. It's really hard. I got to tell you, just being real honest with you, um, a lot of what I do feels like float building. You see these great parades and then come like the end of the parade, they're junk piles. And so I work really hard to produce a really nice event on a Sunday and you're like, it's Monday, I've got to start planning for next Sunday. And that's how ministry feels. And you don't get to see the fruit of it. Um, it sometimes feels like people can take or leave it, and yet I'm inspired by the word. I'm like, oh, this is helping me. I want to help other people with it, or whatever. And, but here's the thing. After 25 years of doing this, you start to look around at people who have been in your ministry. I got a call from a guy who, in a nice way, told me that he felt sort of forced to go to Mexico as a college student during spring break. Uh, and he didn't really want to go, but he kind of felt like, not that I guilt tripped him into it, but I was like, what else are you going to do, you know? And he had no plans, but he's like, uh, you know what? He's living in Southeast Asia. He called me to say, hey, we went to Africa. My family got my, mal malaria. Uh, we were sent home. We weren't going to go. We had two kids. We had huge health concerns. We came back, spent a couple years, but now we're in Indonesia one of the most militantly Muslim places in the world, um, they have five kids. They're raising their kids in Indonesia. I'm like, and he's calling to thank me. I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if you should thank me, bro. But I feel super compelled to pray for him all the time. Uh, and, but I get to see, like, 
I just knew the guy had no plans and nothing better to do on a spring break. And I was like, seriously, you should come. It will be fun, it will be meaningful. And we're like road tripping down to Mexico for a week. And it's like changed the trajectory of his life. I'm like, okay, every now and then I get to see that. Uh, and I, I could spend the next hour just recounting countless stories like that. The second thing he says is yeast. Um, yeast for us is a symbol of growth. And if you've done any baking and you see it rise, it's not like yeast gets compartmentalized. It weaves its way through the whole loaf so that the whole thing begins to rise. And as yeast permeates the whole batch of dough, so the kingdom of heaven spreads through a person's life. God transforms a life the more a person surrenders their whole heart. One of the things that's the most paralyzing is when people take steps and they go, oh gosh, if you've seen how far I came, if you knew me before, I'm good. Or if you look around and go, man, I'm better than that joker. It is the most paralyzing, debilitating perspective that you can have. Because what you're doing is saying, I'm good. And yet there's so much more. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast and it's wanting to take up our, and, and rise through the whole part of our life. And the more we surrender our lives, the more we reprioritize our lives, the more we give into our lives, whether it be our finances, whether it be our relationships, whether it be our private lives, whether it be our screen time, whether it be uh, how we spend our weekends or our evening, whatever area of our life, the more we give in, the more the yeast, the, the kingdom of heaven begins to grow. That's how this thing works. And by the way, the more work it feels like, it's not always a goosebump. It's not always a warm fuzzy. I read um, this Wednesday, an article came out um, and it was an almost good article out of the New York Times. Um, but I have, to, I, I have to draw attention to it. Uh, this is the 25-year anniversary of, of the Rwandan genocide. I don't know if you remember that, 1994. Um, they said upwards of a million people. There's a minority group of Tutsis, that were, there was a majority group of Hutu, and, and there was just craziness, um, and it was tragic. Well, uh, this article was written as kind of an anniversary piece and reflecting on it, but the article was written with no gospel orientation, no sense of when eternity has already begun, no sense of the hope of the resurrection, no sense that, and so I just thought, you're so limited as a, as a journalist because you can't tell the full story. So let me just draw this. He says, what happens uh, when hundreds of thousands of people who committed genocide leave prison and return to their communities where they perpetrated violence? 25 years ago this month, Rwanda crumbled as violence swept across the country. Although political leaders orchestrated the genocide, several hundred thousand Hutu civilians participated by killing or raping members of the Tutsi minority. After the genocide ended, the new Rwandan government created a court system to hold those civilians accountable. Roughly 312,000 trials. Um, uh, resulted in prison sentences, including 15,444 life sentences, propelling Rwanda to one of the most highest incarcerated rates in the world. Over the past few years, tens of thousands of the convicted genociders, or the people who committed the genocide, have been completing their sentences and now they're returning to their communities, once again becoming neighbors to families 
they harmed. Okay, these aren't like, you know, in America, people move around. In America, we have mobility. Like, wherever you were born and raised is probably not Austin. I mean, that's what we find. There's more transplants, or it's very common to find people from other parts of the state or other parts of the country. When you're living in a village, you don't just, like, go up to the university on the other side of the country or move. Like, it's not a jet-sending crowd. It's not a mobile crowd, right? So 25 years later, after you took up a machete and raped your neighbor's wife or, you know, cut off a limb, you're coming back home. Hey, what kind of reception do you expect? I mean, 25 years to think about the heat of the moment. And that's what they're they're unpacking. In 2017, we traveled to Rwanda to find out how these people in their communities are managing these tense situations. And since then, we have been following nearly 200 returning citizens from their final days in prison in their lives back to their communities. And what we learned about their experiences surprised us and taught us about the human capacity for forgiveness and reconciliation. And this is where it just kind of dulls, right? Because it's the human capacity for forgiveness and reconciliation. Really? Because I can hold a grudge. Really? Because I have like a vivid memory. If it's left up to me, I will not forget, nor will I forgive. There's no incentive to, right? I choose that curse. I choose that disease, except that the resurrection changes everything. So they give a couple of examples of people. They name names, but then he says, what could explain such, and and they're talking about how remarkable it was, people showing them hospitality and then coming home and, and even bringing them groceries or, or you know, I mean, I mean it's, it's remarkable. And he says, what could explain such unlikely friendly welcome? Much of the answer lies in where Rwandans place blame for the genocide. Sources like public school curriculums and government-run memorials paint a complex picture of the violence as rooted in Belgian colonial rule that exacerbated divisions between Hutu and Tutsi. These sources uh, also highlight the bad governments that discriminated against Tutsis and encouraged violence during the genocide. By placing blame on historical colonials and government, the dominant narrative removes some of the responsibility from individuals who perpetrated the violence on the ground, especially the uneducated farmers who claim they were acting uh, out of fear or were following orders. We have a problem. We have a problem in that we somehow find comfort in blame. That if we can point the finger and say they're to blame, the system was to blame, the government was to blame, bad education, if those people hadn't been so racist, then somehow there's healing. And God's like, are you kidding me? There's no healing in blame. There's no comfort in blame. And so this article just went off the rails for me because it started talking about these kind of social programs. And what I would simply say is the healing is in Christ. Not tolerance. Not in simply becoming like, let's get better legislation or let's, let's try to just simply be better human beings. What we need is some supernatural intervention to actually, who modeled for us this kind of reconciliation. That's a powerful image of what Christ has done for us, but what Christ wants to do through us. And the only way I can live into that reality is with the Holy Spirit's help. I mean, I'm all for good government. I'm all for like equality. I, I, I believe that the, a lot of reforms are needed, but if we can't see the supernatural, and, and the reason I, I get so excited about it is because I, I Googled right after like I'm reading this and I go, Christian response to Rwanda. And it was like, 
story after story because what they won't tell is the faith story. The thing that's making that happen is Christianity is coming to a place where you say, I choose forgiveness because I've been forgiven. Okay, now that's a testimony of a changed life. That's the kingdom of heaven, the seed germinating. You want to talk about 25 years of sowing seeds where now the people are coming home and you're like, I've been, I've been asking for God to heal the memories of this. I've been asking God to help me forgive. And now I'm going to live in community with the person that killed my children. Come on now. That doesn't happen without Christ. And so what the story of the New York Times wasn't talking about is the component of faith. Faith as the transformational agent. And it's, it's heaven on earth. And it's hard. And they'd never want to go through it, God forbid. But it's changing lives. That's the narrative that we need to embrace. That's the hope of the gospel, but that's the hope of the resurrection. That's real. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to go and like create our own like, you know, revival here. But in light of the resurrection, can we kind of do a little bit of a pivot and try and live a little bit differently? Can we think in terms of heaven as seed and yeast? Not like big banners and taking over the city and if we can just get the prevailing political party and if we can get everyone elected that we think represents our value try a different tack how about this live in light of the resurrection and what we want to do we've been saving money and we've got some money to burn and not a ton but enough to maybe create a new practice I want to talk about the new normal. Together, we saved money. Our Lent wasn't just giving up. Our Lent was saving money. We gave up stuff so that we can save. And whether you contributed to or not, I want you to participate in it. Because we still have some good neighbor fund if we need to go find more. But my point is this. I want to do some things that think about seed and yeast. The kingdom of heaven is like seed and yeast. And we don't need a ton to make a difference. And I want you to instruct your kids about this. And if you're in mentoring relationships, I want you to instill it in them. If you've got people asking questions about faith, I want you to express it in these terms. As a faith community, we have, uh, we, we cobbled together $1,500. And last Sunday, we passed out $500 of just HEB gift cards. And I'm like, just go ready armed to just meet a need. You're not gonna like transform a culture. Uh, but all I'm saying is, if someone needs encouragement, if someone needs help if someone needs a favor if someone's down on their luck just have resource and start to think about how you could respond and so that's what we're trying to do is okay well the resurrection brought us new life could we bring life however you define life to others encouragement hug favor patience cup of coffee house cleaning lunch tab I mean it, it, it's endless because we're talking about seeds and yeast and so what we want to do today is we want every family unit that calls Mission Church home or if you don't call Mission Church home I want I want you to take this with you up to Portland so here's what we did we we put together envelopes because we still had a thousand dollars and I wanted to do something different think about this when we practice first renewal what is renewal it's just resensitizing our heart. It's learning to yield to God's prompts. 
So in the busyness of my day, being the center of my life, trying to get my to-do list done, I want to pray through and allow myself to be interrupted by the presence and the Spirit of God. We are renewing our hearts. That's one of our rhythms. But we also want to practice generosity and compassion. But it doesn't look like much. I mean, what's 50 bucks? 50 bucks is 50 bucks. Depends on what you're doing and depends on how you want to use it. But I also want to practice community because if you find a need that's greater than your 50 bucks, go to your tribe mates, go to the church. Don't come back to me because I'm spreading all the money around. All the people have the money. So now if you go, oh my gosh, hey y'all, found someone, God, have you spent your 50 bucks yet? You want to throw in with me? I know Jess and Kristen and Shannon and Natalie are working on doing this like healthcare day with like some of the Burmese, what they've been teaching. And, uh, and so I'm like, sweet, throw in a couple hundred bucks there. What else? And then the other thing I would simply say when we practice generosity and when we practice uh, compassion, don't look necessarily just for needs. It's so easy to go, I don't really see needs. None of the people around me, no, no, no. I'm not talking about needs as in the needy. I'm talking about opportunity as in the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And most people don't like to receive. Most people don't want to like ask for a favor. Don't want to act like they're not all put together. And maybe we just need to initiate loving kindness. Why? Because the resurrection changes everything because we got new life so what are we supposed to do other than maybe bring life encouragement support help niceness to others 50 bucks you got your marching orders and by the way we're putting a time limit on this so we want to use the month of may to do this because on the on the in a month when we gather together for tribes this is the talking point so whether you guys are sitting at you know the Whitestone Brewery and food trucks and that's what you guys are doing on June whatever you're doing we want to see how the money got spent and I'm hoping some sidebar conversations get started so before you leave tonight take an envelope and if you want to spend it all in one place there's two 20s and a 10 make it work oh and by the way let's add apprenticing to it if you got kids could you make this a part of your nightly prayer we want to teach kids about a living faith, not just a Sunday go to church faith. We want to teach them, hey kids, what are some needs? Are there any kids in your class that maybe need some encouragement? Should we do something for someone? Are there any foster families in your neighborhood that maybe need their house cleaned? Well, I, I mean, get creative, but pray about it. Ask God. But don't just talk as couples. Don't just talk as adults. Let's teach our kids that this is what it means to have a living faith and to live in light of the resurrection changes everything seeds and yeast that's what we're doing that's a good thing so let's go ahead and worship and I'll invite the band back up but let's pray about this because I'm super excited about what we can do with this and so um, Bill and Connie are going to be passing out some envelopes at the back um, Connie has treats so come get a treat from Connie uh, we're, we're going to sing a little you don't have to go right now and um, but let's first take this evening's offering um, our good neighbor fund is growing so we want to continue to give to that with every head that's gathered for worship we put a dollar aside but uh, we, we just so thankful for your generosity and your support and buying into the vision and the values of what Mission Hills is doing so uh, let's pray as we take this evening's offering and, and respond in worship uh, our father in heaven I, I just thank you uh, 
that you are faithful. And so we want to be faithful as you are faithful. We want to be generous as you're generous. But God, would you give us spiritual eyes to see the kingdom of heaven around us? Sometimes it looks too subtle. And so I just pray that we would have your eyes, your ears, your sensitivity. I pray that maturity would be, would be our, our growing awareness, our growing responsiveness to your prompts, to your nudges, to your interruptions. Oh, I pray that Monday morning would come and we'd go, oh, that happened fast. I'm out of 50 bucks already. But Lord, would you just like enliven our community? Would you create a movement? Would you just seed in our hearts the practice of generosity and the practice of compassion? Would you create a new normal in us just as you have given us new life? I pray that we would be just vessels of encouragement and hope for others. Thank you that there's more where this came from. Thank you that your love, your well, runs so deep. Thank you for these faithful servants, these, these friends of mine who just stick their hand in there and say, I do, I'm in. So Lord, would you just put people in our path by faith? Help us to instruct our kids in a living faith, a vibrant faith, a resurrected faith, and we'll just give you the praise for it. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.